just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and look at your word. We ask you to show us what you would want us to see from these sections as we look about the prophecies of Jesus and the millennial kingdom. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Zechariah chapter 11. We're, we're going to start with verse 10. Uh, we previously were talking about uh, God talking about the shepherds and how he was taking care of his people. He said he had two staffs. He named one of them Beauty and the other one Band, and that's about as far as we got on the last chapter. So starting at verse 10. And I took my staff, even Beauty, and cut it asunder, that I might break my covenant which I had made with all the people. And it was broken in that day so that the poor of the flock that waited on me knew that it was the word of the Lord. And I said unto them, If you think good, give me, your, give me my price, and if not, forbear. For they weighed out my price, 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said unto me, Cast it unto the, unto the potter, a goodly price that I was prized at, of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and cast it, cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Then I cut asunder my other staff, even bands, that, that I may break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. All right. So here we see God bringing judgment on his people. And God really has two different ways that he ministers to people. The first one is his beauty, the justice, the mercy that he brings in. And this is very interesting. He says, I'm going to break that one. He's going to break his justice and his mercy. And, you know, we as Christians like it when he does the idea that he's being pleasant. He's being, he's being nice to us. He's being kind to us. But God also has the one that he says is bans. All right? Uh, those are the way that we're bound together, that we're put together fetters type thing. And God will use whatever it takes to draw his people to him and to help them. And he says here that I'm going to break asunder and cut asunder the beauty that I may break my covenant with all the, that I've made with all my people. And it was broken in that day so that the poor of the flock that, that waited on me knew that it was the word of the Lord. God brought judgment on Israel. Remember, Israel was to be in their land but because of their disobedience to God, it appeared that he broke his covenant to them in where they were at. But he has not broken his covenant with Israel. He brought them back from their captivity. After, after 80 years of captivity, he brought them back to their land. And then he sent them back out again in 70 AD when they were again being disobedient. And then he brought them back in 1948 to bring a nation again. And as far as we know, that will be their last time because the Antichrist will come and then he will come to deliver them as, as we understand the end times. But God apparently breaks his covenant with them. As far as they're concerned, it's, it's over. Uh, and this is, again, I, we talked about it last night, how Athaliah had killed thought she had killed all of David's seed, which brings a controversy to people. David's supposed to have somebody that rules forever. If Athaliah really killed everybody, how do you justify what God has said? And God had arranged for one of David's seed to be set aside. Here, God is saying, it's going to look 
very much like I have broken my covenant with my people. They're going to be sent into captivity. They no longer get to live in the promised land. They're going to seem like they're not coming back. And if, you're, if you understand, again, we're going to bring out what I've been bringing out. We've got to believe the Bible because of what it says and then figure out why what it says is true rather than, okay, we're going to believe other things and, and try to figure out why the Bible's wrong. It always proves out in the long run. Always. When we look at things, it makes more sense to go with what God says than to try to figure out what man tries to pretend to say. And I've always loved listening to the news and, and science. And, you know, you'll hear these people spend millions of dollars to find out something. And if it's correct, it matches the Bible. And it's like, wow, you just spent three, four million dollars to prove what God had already said. <laughs> and when they don't agree with the Bible, it's like you wasted money to come up with the wrong answer. And you know, this is the important thing for us as Christians to be able to just say, I'm going to accept what God says. And Christians, when they don't try to agree, accept what God says, will try to jump through hoops to match up what man says. What's so cool is that, that's like to say the scientists spent millions of dollars, they can go to the Bible and it's all free. And it's free, it doesn't cost anything. It doesn't cost you anything, you just believe. That's kind of nice when they prove it, but you know, they, they wasted a lot of money to prove what God already said if they just trusted what God said. And... This was the problem I had growing up. You know, I, I studied the scriptures. And God said he created the world in, in six days. And my science teachers were telling me evolution was true. And then they would quote these, these ideas. And then I'd go look them up and find out that they were lying to me. <laughs> that most of what they said either wasn't true, had been proven incorrect. And in scientific journals, not just... Theolog theologians going in, but scientific journals had said what they were telling me wasn't true. And yet they were in my textbooks to brainwash us into what they wanted to believe. So this is why it's important for us as Christians to say, God said it. And it's pretty simple. God said it, I believe it. Now, I am somebody who's analytical and I like to go prove it, any, you know, prove it anyway. The good news is it stands up. There's nothing in the scriptures that can be disproved by true study. Now, we may not have all the facts. And I mentioned last night, you know, for, for millennia, they did not believe that David existed. Because nowhere outside of the Bible did they find any historical, archaeological proofs that David existed. He was considered the King Arthur of of England, you know, like English, English King Arthur. There was, there was a king, they got united, but all the good and the old got pushed and put into one person into a overabundance. And then all of a sudden they found the proof that David existed and that he had a great kingdom. And that's only been in the last 80 years or so that that was proven. Before that, we just had to accept that David was who he was by what the Bible said. So we need to hold on to whatever the Bible says because it is true. These people were going to go into captivity. To them, they had been rejected by God, and God said he wasn't going to reject them. They're supposed to be the, the center of the world, the ruler of the world, and now they're being rejected. Aren't they rejected? They did the rejecting, though. They did the rejecting initially. 
and God was disciplining them, but from sight, they have been rejected. They're going into captivity. Well, no, of course not. The, the, it doesn't count that they were being disciplined. Didn't count. But, but you understand what I'm saying. From their perspective, they're going, God has forsaken us. Even though they forsake God in the first place, God's promise was that he was going to keep them forever, and they seem to be rejected. They don't see that years later God's going to bring them back to a nation, and then he's going to bring them back to a nation again. They don't see the whole picture. And this is our problem with us as human, humans. We see what little we see. And we have a very short-sighted view of most everything. And it's getting shorter in, with, each, with each generation. All right? Uh, it's very hard for people to understand that, number one, as Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. So we can, we can predict everything that's going to happen if you just know know history and know what's happened in the past, we can predict as we watch what's happening, and we don't even have to be prophets, all we got to do is say, this is what happened in the past, we're following a straight line, nobody is changing, so unless something changes, this is what's going to happen. And then we have brilliant people who write exactly what they're going to do in the first place. Now, as we look at the destruction of America, we can look at the books of the people who wrote How to Destroy America and say, Here's what they did, here's what they did, here's what they did, here's what they did. Wow, this is what they're going to do, this is what they're going to do, this is what they're going to do, right here it's in black and white, and know exactly what they were going to do, and we can look in the history and see that it's been done in the past, and it's not a problem. When people forsake God, discipline happens. And here we have God saying, I am going to appear, you know, he says I'm going to break, he just says I'm going to break my covenant with these people. Now, it wasn't that he was breaking his covenant with Israel because the covenant with Abraham was unconditional. He had put no conditions on it. Abraham, you're going to have children. They're going to, they're going to be as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the, the, sand of the beach or the sand of the, of the land. Uh, you know, that's a lot of kids. All right? Unconditional. David had an unconditional covenant. David, a your seed will sit on the throne of Israel forever. Unconditional. This is why this is a big deal to them. It appears that everything is breaking down, even though it is not. But from human perspective, everything is broken down. And this is why it's very important. When we read the scriptures, the scriptures are right. If we don't think it is, then we have to alter the way we think, not the way the, what the scriptures say. And just say, it is right, and, God, and then ask God, please show me how it fits together. And there's things that I don't fully understand in the Bible. And I am glad that there are things that, that I don't fully understand in the Bible, because if I understood everything in the Bible, the Bible does not represent an infinite God that's eternal and more, no, more knowing than I am. And there, a lot of the analytical human, human people go, well, I just can't understand it. As if that's supposed to stop us from believing the Bible. But it really should be, it's a challenge for me to stretch what I know to say, God, you know more than I do. I like it that there's things I can't, I, that I struggle with. There's things in I know and I'm going, God, I just don't understand how both of these can, things can be true but my mind is too puny to be able to be able to understand everything. And it will be forever. 
because God is greater than we are. And sometimes it's just going to be God, I accept it by faith and help me to understand. Or as Thomas said, you know, I, I'm now seeing, I believe. Or as the man that was healed of his blindness, God says, do you want to be healed? And he goes, God, I believe, help my unbelief. Sometimes we just have to ask, God, help my unbelief. And he will guide, he'll do what it, do what it takes to help us see what's going on. And this is, you know, Paul, your questions on what's called apologetics. Being ready always to answer, answer questions are very important. I've studied extensively in that area. I love answering those kind of questions. It's fun for me to answer those questions. Because I've seen too many people that have asked questions in the church that go, and they're told, don't ask those questions. Well, if you don't ask them in church, where, are you, where else are you going to ask them, and where are you going to get the right answer? If you're not asking them in church to get the right answer, you're going to get the wrong answers from the world. And yet, for so long, the church has told people, don't ask questions. Don't challenge these. And I've been a teacher of children for most of my life, and I want the children to ask, you know, you know who is God? How, how can God be? You know, there, you know, all these questions are very important because they're going to think them. And if the church says, oh, you can't ask that, why not? Why can't we ask questions? God says, come now, let us reason together. We are in the only religion that allows you to ask questions and get real answers. Most of the time you get the answer that unfortunately a lot of churches will give people. Just accept it by faith. All right, well, that's fine. But God says, God says, let us reason together. He's the creator of the universe that puts a reasoned universe together. And if it wasn't for that type of a God, we would not have a universe that makes any sense. And most religions just don't make sense because ultimately they have contradictions that don't, that don't fit science, they don't fit reason, and they're just told, just believe it. Just believe it. The scriptures match science. The scriptures talk about things that weren't even discovered until the, the 18 and 1900s. And they're in scripture. Most of it was found, most of the great discoveries in science were discovered because people read the Bible and said, I wonder if it's true. Oceanography, the study of the tides, the guy goes, the, when the Bible says the paths of the sea, he decided that he was going to go study and see if there were really paths in the seas and found the ocean currents that made paths in the seas. You know, why? Because the Bible said it was there, so he looked for it. The water cycle is in the, is in the scripture. The nitrogen cycle is in the scriptures. All of these things are in the scriptures. Now, I'm not saying it's a science book, but God put all the proofs of what was in there in the scripture, long before we had any knowledge of them, they were in here. We know we can trust the word. Now, if we, and if we find something we don't understand, then we just need to come to a better understanding. And it, and it really comes down to all of these things. And God says, it's, it was broken in a day, and the poor of the flock waited and knew that it was the word of the Lord. And then in verse 12, it says, and I said to them, if you think it good, give me my price. All right, and this is my wages. Give me my wages. And it says, and if not, forbear. Now, forbear. I love the word forbear because that means to give up the right to do something. Okay, forbear is a very powerful word. What's it mean again? To give up my right to demand something. 
So if I forbear, somebody's done, something's done something wrong to me, I forbear, it's even more than forgiveness. To demand to demand punishment. There you go. That's true forgiveness. Yes. I have not. If I'm holding a grudge against somebody and want them to pay, I haven't forgiven them. <laughs> when I truly forgiven them, I am giving up my right to demand that they get punished. And forbearing is that same type of idea. I'm giving up my right to to expect to do something that they deserve. And God has a very powerful part in this. And most people do not forgive. And forgiveness is not forgetting. You, know, for, you don't forget, but you do give up the right to make somebody pay for what, what, what it is they've done. That's when you've really forgiven. Uh, now, usually that will also mean that you will forget. And in reality, we can't forget. I mean, everything that ever happens to us is stuck in our brain. But by, we've said this before. If I do not replace something in my mind, I technically forget it. And most of us can't remember what we ate last week unless it was a big, big super meal or something. We don't remember it. Why? Because we don't think about it. We don't rehearse it. Why do we remember bad things about people? We keep thinking about it. I know what that, you know, you know what that person did to me. I just can't get over what that person did to me. And we just replay it over and over and over in our minds. And it makes it so that we can't forget. Uh, the real point is, once I give up my right to demand that they, their punishment, then I stop playing it in my mind and I start literally to forget. Because it's not a big deal to me. I'm not, I'm not waiting for them. Now, you know, most people, even if they say they've forgiven and they've turned it over to God, they're just waiting. God, have you got them yet? God, you didn't got them yet. God, you didn't get them yet. No, nope, you didn't get them yet. And every time we say that, we're playing in our mind what they deserve. And then we're saying, I forgave them. If I truly forgive them, I'm willing to wait for God to do his punishment, which they will get. It may not be till they stand at the white throne judgment. They will get what's coming, there, coming to them. And if I truly forgive them and let God be the one that deals with it, then I can have fellowship with somebody. I can even treat them nicely because I'm not waiting for them to get what they deserve. I know that God will take care of it. Now, I'm not saying it's easy to do. It's something we have to learn to be able to do. But and it's not a forgiveness. It's we don't even expect God to take care of it. True forgiveness means I don't care whether God does yeah. it or not. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. We don't care. Once I've come to the bottom of the issue, yeah. it's in God's hand. Yeah. When I've truly forgiven something, it's in God's hand. He is the one that will be revenging if it needs to be revenged. Yeah, I don't expect him to revenge on somebody. Yeah, but it's in his hand. He's going to do what he wants to do. I know that he will because ultimately I know he will at the white throne judgment or he'll use it to bring them to Christ. And at that point, they may or may not get what I feel that they deserve or felt that they deserved. And it is tough. Yeah, to me, forgiveness is, is giving them up totally. Giving it, giving it away. Yeah. Giving away my right to be angry with somebody, my right to demand, demand punishment of them. Now, and God will do what he, God will do. God is just. God is righteous. So he eventually will bring 
consequence into their life for it and probably already has even though I don't know about it. And this is the thing, most of the time we don't understand when God is working on somebody. You know, we look at people, you know, that have wealth and, and fame and all these things. We go, well, they got their whole life put together. Look how, you know, I don't understand how they could have, you know, they're, so, they're such bad people. How could they have everything? But we don't know what's in their heart. We don't know how much emptiness is in their heart, even though they seem to have what we think is everything. And we know they don't because all you got to do is read in the papers when they go into rehab or they've committed suicide or, or they're, they're, you know, all the problems that they have because of not having peace in their heart. And we think they have everything. You know, and I would rather have the peace of God in my heart and have what everybody looks at and says nothing than to have the whole world with no peace. And this is why the more we decide to let God be God and God be the judge, the better off we are. Because I don't know everything. And you know, the better off we are is to let God be God and I'm just going to be me. And I have people, especially now that I've been a pastor, people will try to have me, well, pastor, just tell me what to do. <laughs> you know what? I have a big enough problem doing my own life. I don't need to be telling you how to live your life. You and God figure out what you're going to do. I'll teach you what he says. I'll teach you what he says to live. And you just figure out what you're going to do. I'll give you advice from, from the scriptures. <laughs> but I have enough trouble making, having in my own life to be able to have to be responsible for other people's lives. And if you make the mistake of telling somebody else what they should do, all they're going to do is blame you if everything doesn't seem to go right. And this is an important thing. You know, the more we realize that we're not God, the better off we are. But what was the temptation for, for Eve? You shall be like God, knowing good and evil. What was the fall of Satan? He wanted to be like God. He used that same temptation on Adam and Eve, and that's been the temptation and the problem for man ever since, to be like God, to run people's lives, to be in control. And control is an illusion. We're never in control because we're in God's hands. He's in control. And if we think we're in control, God will prove to us that we're not in control. Because he's the one that's in control. So the more we learn to trust in God, the more we learn to just have faith and relax in God, the better off we are. And the easier life is because no longer am I trying to be in control and the master of my own fate. I'm going... God, you're in control. Now, again, that does not mean I just sit back and just float around and go, okay, God, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. But I also realize that my plans are not ultimately what's going to happen. That's what James says. You know, you know, if God wills, you make your plans. And he wasn't saying don't make plans. He just says they're all subject to what God is going to do. You know, so it's very important for us to be able to understand when God is in control, it is very important for us to know that he is the one, that he has everything in control and he is in charge. Uh, and it's really important for us to understand because even when you look at the disciples, when Jesus was walking with the disciples, the disciples did not understand anything they said because they didn't listen to most of what he said. They said, we're following the Messiah. 
And because they understood that the Messiah was going to build a kingdom and Jerusalem was going to be the center of the, universe, of, the, of the whole world and everybody was going to come to Jerusalem and the Messiah was going to be king, every time he talked about dying on the cross and all this other stuff, they did not hear, they did not understand because it did not make sense to them. We're here following the king. Uh, Jesus, you keep talking about dying. We don't know what you're talking about. You're supposed to be building a kingdom that's eternal. How can, how can you be talking about dying? And they really had, you know, remember Peter one time said, you know, uh, what are you talking about dying? And that's when, you know, Jesus said, get you behind me, Satan. You know, he, Peter was trying to rebuke him from his understanding of what the Messiah was supposed to be. You know, Jesus, you're, you're talking nonsense. You're, you're, the, you're the Messiah. You're the king. And he says, get you behind me. Because Peter did not really understand what was going on. We need to be careful to try to remember that God is God. He's going to do things his way. And I can't tell you with 50 years of walking with God how many times he's done just what he wants to do when it doesn't make sense to me. You know, he's never asked me for my advice on anything. It's pretty amazing. In my life, he's never asked me how I want my life run because he's God. And the more we can realize that he's God and we're not, the easier life gets for us. And it is, it is tough because we, in our fallen nature, want to be master of our life. And we want to be master of other people's lives, too, most of the time. But we at least want to be master of our own life and, you know, and other people's lives, and we're not. And we need to understand we're subject to God. He is king, he is lord, he is master. And those words are hard for us, especially as Americans, to get over. Because Americans don't like to be told what to do by anybody. And that includes God. You know, we don't like to because we are independent. You know, we are independent people. Don't, nobody tells us what to do. That is not biblical. <laughs> but it is the American thing. And sometimes we have to get over being American to be followers of God and say, God, you are what's important. I want to follow you. And so now we go on here. He says, the price of my silver, and they weighed out 30 pieces of silver. Now, 30 pieces of silver might sound a little familiar. <laughs> somebody sold somebody very important for 30 pieces of silver. <laughs> 30 pieces of silver is the price of a slave in Jew, Jew, Judaism, in Exodus 21, 32. It is the price that Judas sold Jesus for. Just as is, then they pointed back to this verse when they quoted it in the New Testament. And they say that he was took the field and they bought a, potter, they, they bought a potter's field for it. They, Judas gave back the money, and what did they do? They bought a potter's field, which is a place of poor, for the poor to be buried. And this one talks about the potter's house, a little, little bit the difference on it. But, you know, we look at this and say, here's a prophecy of how Jesus was going to be betrayed for the price of a slave. And, you know, and people try to say, you know, Judas didn't know what he was doing and, and all of this, you know, but I think he knew just what he was doing. I don't know that he expected him to be killed, but he knew that he was betraying Jesus. 
And I think he might have hoped maybe that they would talk and he'd be able to convince them of who he was. I don't know how he could have come up with that because every time he talked to the scribes and Pharisees and, and all, he criticized them and told them they were, you know, vipers, you know, use real nice language, your vipers, your whitewashed sepulchers, you know, he called them really nice things. Um, but here he says all of this, and then he says, I will cut asunder even bands that I may break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. They were related. Uh, they were related by blood, even though they were broken apart. And they were broken apart because of Solomon's sins. And then they were broken when Jeroboam and Rehoboam had their little break apart. And ten tribes broke and became the Israel, the northern kingdom. And two tribes were left to, to David's seed. And they kept having relationships. Even though Israel was always following the wrong gods, the Jude, Judah's kings oftentimes would be in close relationship with them and try to follow them. And God says, I'm going to break the very relationship between these two. And very soon after this prophecy, the northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria and went into captivity. Now, this is something that God is saying, broken, broken fellowship. And there has not been two kingdoms ever since. Even when Israel was sent back by Cyrus to be a nation, they were one nation. They were no longer two nations. And they were brought back after the Babylonian captivity. They came back. When they came back in 1948, they came back as one nation, not as two nations. So they have been broken. There's just one nation now. Back to, way, back to the way God created them in the first place. When he brought them out of captivity, out of Egypt, brought them back in and says, you are one nation. And then they broke into two. And then the gods brought them back together as one. He's broken the two and basically put them back together as to, as in, in a unity. But this is important. Man does things and breaks up what God is trying to happen so often. Israel was never supposed to be two nations. Israel was never supposed to be, you know, in the problems that they had. David conquered most of the area that Israel was supposed to have, from the Euphrates down to Egypt and to the Mediterranean over to, the, to, the, to uh, Jordan. And David and Solomon possessed that land. And it's not been the same ever since. Even today, they have this little tiny strip of land that is not, not their nation. And they're going to have, when Jesus reigns, they're going to have the world, but the nation of Israel will be the size that it's supposed to be. And everybody will be coming to them for everything because the king will rule in Israel. And God is, going to, is saying, I'm, going, I'm bringing them back. God has a plan for Israel. Do not buy into this idea that the church has replaced Israel. Now, Israel's been on the shelf for a long time, but there's going to come a time after the rapture that Israel, everything's focused on Israel again. Everything. The temple, the, the prophets, the, the, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, everything focuses on Israel. And the whole world is going to come to fight Israel right before Jesus comes. And they're going to try to wipe out Israel. Satan's whole goal is to wipe out Israel. 
Because if he can wipe out Israel, then God's prophetic plan cannot happen. And God will not let Israel be destroyed. Before Jesus was born, he was trying to wipe out Israel so the Messiah would not be born. And we've seen it all through time how Satan has tried to destroy Israel because Israel is the centerpiece of all of prophetic activity. And if he can get rid of Israel, he can prove that God doesn't know the future. So his goal is to get rid of Israel. And God says, no, you're not getting rid of my people. He's tried through Hitler and Stalin and, and uh, the Nebuchadnezzar and all these other people, uh, Mordecai, all these different people have tried to destroy. Athaliah you know, tried to destroy the kingly line. Uh, all, these, all these people have tried to destroy Israel or the King David's line, and God will not let it happen because he knows the future. And he says, I've already prophesied what we've already told you because he's outside. He knows what's going to happen anyway. He goes, he knows what's going to happen and Satan is trying to destroy it. Why? Because he wants to prove that God is not all-knowing. Even though he knows that God is all-knowing, he's trying to prove that God is not all-knowing and that God is all-powerful and he's trying to prove that God's not all-powerful. Now, how he's deluded himself that bad, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of strange, but... You know, because he's seeing, he sees things different than we do. He's on the spiritual side of, of this side of the coin, but he doesn't even fully understand how big and strong God is. You know, this is the one thing that we that I keep repeating to us over and over. We, as human beings, cannot comprehend how powerful God is, how strong He is, how all-knowing He is, how omnipresent He is, because we have very finite minds. Satan is a created being. He also does not understand the full impact of how strong and powerful God is. Now, and he has a lot more understanding of it than we do because he's in the spiritual realm. But he doesn't understand the full power of God. No matter how big or strong you think God is, you're too small because we're finite. And he's infinite. Every created being cannot comprehend God in his entirety because God is infinite. And we as created beings are finite, including the angels, because they are created beings. They are finite. They are not infinite. Now, they are strong. They are powerful compared to us as humans, but they are still finite beings that cannot completely understand God. We will spend eternity learning about God and still never understand God completely. Because God says in Isaiah that he is higher than we are. His thoughts are higher. His, he, everything about him is bigger. He's higher than we are. And that, I believe, is going to be true forever. He will always be bigger and stronger and more knowledgeable than we are. Because we are the created being and he is the creator. No matter what we learn, and I've, and I've kind of jokingly said this, if somehow we learn everything there is to know about our universe, God will just create more for us to learn. And, I'm, and I say it jokingly, but by the same token, I'm not joking. If somehow we learned everything there is to know in our universe, in our world, God would just say, okay, you, you need some more to learn, here's some more to learn. And just create it out of, out of, out of thin air for more, more for us to learn. That's how powerful and infinite God is. And we can't even understand, you know, we talk about infinity, and if you're a mathematician or a science, we talk about it, you know, we think about it, we contemplate it, but we can't. You know, how big is infinity? 
Well, whatever, however big you think infinity is, you know, uh, raise it to the power of infinity. And you're still not, you're still not big enough. You know, uh, you know, we just can't, in our finite being, we cannot grapple with what infin in infinity is. Pascal said that we all have a God-shaped vacuum in our heart. God is an infinite God, so we have an infinite vacuum in our heart that only God can fill. And no matter what we try to fill it with, we'll never fill it, which is why we need God. And once we fill it with God, we are at peace because that hole has finally been filled. And we need to keep this in mind that God has a great plan for us if we will just sit back and relax. It's called faith rest. I just rest in faith that God is true and that he has a plan. And the more I learn to rest in God, the easier life gets. Because I don't have to struggle anymore. And again, I, I don't want to make it think that we just sit back and say, okay, God, just rain, rain your blessings upon me as I sit on my butt and do nothing. I've said many times, some of, the, some of the blessings of God have come from very hard work. When I was depending on him for all my finances, it usually came in the blessing of work. You know, people call and go, I've got a job for you. Would you do this? Would you do that? Would you do this? Very rarely did I just get a gift fall into my hands. Now, I'm not going to say it never happened, but they were the more rare occasion. Most of it was, I've got a job for you, and it came as hard work. But, you know, that's the blessing. God has, and he puts things in place. Now, I never panicked about it. I wasn't out there trying to drum up business. God brought the jobs, and if I had rejected the jobs, then I would not have had the money to, to live. That's just like what you're saying, that I would ask God, I could use this amount of money. But yet, I had to work for it. It was just before Christmas. I had to order of, uh, four or five crosses, and that was a lot of money. And so, so then I, and, and plus I asked them, I need to start using your talent you gave me again. And that was just so cool because I I got to get going. I asked for it, and I just can't do it. You know, have yeah. it handed to me. I have to work for it. But it's not us panicking to do this work. Yeah. It's just responding when God puts it in our path, and we go, okay, here it is. Thank you. Get it done. And again, if I'm just sitting on my butt waiting for work to show up, that's not going to happen either. Uh, it's very important that we listen to God and res respond and just rest. You know, and when we're resting in him, it's so much more peaceful. I'm not panicking. I'm not running around like a chicken with my head cut off saying, oh, no, the bill is due. And the funny thing is that God usually gives us the money when, when the bill is due, not, not before. You know, he doesn't provide it to us days ahead of time so that we can start thinking that, look what I did. I got, I got this taken care of. God will pop it into our hands just in time to pay the bill and make sure that, he, that we know that it's him. So, all right, verse 15. And the Lord said to me, Take a, unto you yet the instruments of the foolish shepherd, for lo, I will raise up a shepherd in the land which shall not vi visit those to be cut off, neither shall seek the young one, nor heal that which is broken, nor feed that which stands, but he shall eat the flesh of the fat and tear their claws in pieces. Woe to the idle shepherd that leaves the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his 
right eye. His arm shall be clean dried up and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. God is still bringing judgment. Israel at this time is not following God. Their shepherds are not speaking to them. They're not giving them warning. And God says, I'm going to allow these shepherds to draw people in. The false prophets, false teachers, um, even, even some people that are maybe even good, halfway decent teachers can be false, false shepherds. They're leading people wrong. They have no care. And this is important for us. Do we really care for those that are put under our authority? As parents, we teach our children. We train our children. You know, not just teach them, but train up our children in the way they should walk. And training is a very hard thing to do. Because every time you see something going wrong, you are to correct. You know, when I was a manager, a training manager, I had to correct other managers. I had to correct my crew. And it gets tiring sometimes to have to always train. And it was great when somebody was actually learning <laughs> and doing things right. And you were able to back off a little bit and let them, let them make their decisions. And these are the shepherds, he's saying. These shepherds, not only are they not training, not shepherding, he even says they're worse. They're not going out, they're not seeking, they're not healing, they're not, not feeding them to stand but they're literally eating and tearing apart the sheep. This is a sad part when a pastor will tear apart his, his flock. And this is what they're saying. They're, they're criticizing. I am so proud, you know, proud to be able to tell people how good this church is and how much people care and how much you all are growing. Is it a perfect church? No, we're not a perfect church. There is no such thing as a perfect church. But you know, the, the key is I'm going to keep teaching and I'm going to bring out the word of God and I'm going to help people learn what God wants us to learn and hope that God will teach me. And I've told many of you many times when I'm doing these lessons, I'm talking more to myself than anybody else in many cases because I have just as many problems as everybody else. But I'm going to keep going after the word. I'm going to keep talking to people and if I see things happening I will, I will take people aside and say this is, you know, and encourage build up, edify you know, not try to tear down and rip to shreds but help them say this is what this is what I'm seeing, are you, are you making good decisions? Are you following in the right direction? And give people freedom you know, one of the greatest things that I have learned over my years is to, that grace wins people's hearts you know, I don't want to put a bunch of rules and laws on people because I don't like rules and laws myself. You know, and I've told you all, if somebody tells me you can't do something, you better have a good reason why I can't do it or I'm going to want to do it. And even if you have a good reason, I might want to do it. But this is where it's important. Grace. God's gifts to us that allows us to be accepted even when we are doing the wrong. And God says, I've got grace for you. Israel, up to this point, almost a thousand years of disobeying God. And God has not judged them. And they keep getting worse. <laughs> and God still hasn't judged them. 
Now he sent in, you know, he sent in punishments and he's done, but he hasn't taken away their nation. He's getting ready to take away their nation because of their sin. And this is one of the things that God deals with us as individuals. He allows us to walk the wrong way and walk the wrong way and walk the wrong way. And he puts, he puts good shepherds in our path if we're in a good church. And the, and the shepherd will give us message. And, and the shepherd will step on your toes once in a while and say, you know, with the message. And, and you're going, ouch, that hurt. <laughs> you, you touched my sin and I didn't like it. <laughs> if you're really listening to God, you're going, well, I didn't like it, but maybe I'll learn. Uh, some people go, that, that pastor's speaking against me all the time, and they leave the church. That's not the right answer if you're in a good church. I can't tell you how many times I've stepped on my own toes while I'm preaching, but over the years, how many pastors have stepped on my toes and stepped on my sins? And, you know, sometimes you think, well, has that guy been following me around? You know, how did, how did he know? But it is an amazing thing how God will put things together for us to hear just what we need to hear when we need to hear it. And sometimes we get our toes toe stomped on a little bit and it's like, God, uh, okay, you know, God, I think I got it the first nine times you told me this week. You know, would you please, uh, please just let it go. <laughs> but obviously I probably haven't got it. <laughs> if I'm having to hear it that many times, I didn't listen the first, the first nine times, you know. Uh, or maybe I'm thick-headed and God knows I'm thick-headed. So. But, you know, this is the same thing in the scriptures. God knows us. He knows how hard-headed we are, and he keeps repeating himself over and over and over again. And it's an amazing thing to me. The more I go through each book of the Bible, there's times when I go, haven't I just taught that? And yes, it was a, the previous month in a different book. But God says, I know your hearts. I know how hard it is for you to respond. And he keeps repeating over and over. And then he's, these are warnings to the false shepherds. There are many people out there that are pastors that should not be pastors because they don't care about their flock. They don't care about their sheep. They're not out there to protect their sheep and to teach their sheep. They're out there to get whatever they can out of, the, out of their church. And I've been amazed as I've listened to it Right now, some of the richest pastors are pastors in Africa and South America. In churches that cannot afford pastors, say that's like the, poorest ever. the poorest countries in the world, and these guys are making millions of dollars a year. You know, uh, in places that can't afford to be paying pastors like that. And you're going, God, are they really? And I'm not going to say they're not. I'm not going to say they are or not. You know, I don't know these guys. But I have a problem in your poor country making that much more than your people as a pastor. Now, now I don't begrudge pastors in America. If, they, if they're at a large church and they're making $50,000, you know, $75,000 a year, you know, and their church is big enough to be able to pay it, then praise God, you know, especially if they're serving God and working for God. I have no problem with that. Our little church, I don't get paid anywhere close to that. <laughs> And probably never will. But my goal is to be able to teach and see people grow. As long as God meets my needs, that's all I care about. And he's met my needs all along. He met my needs before I started working in the prison. He's met my needs since I've been working at the prison. And when I retire from the prison, he'll meet my needs or get fired from the prison, whatever, whatever happens. 
He'll meet my needs because that is what he's promised. He will always meet our needs. All we need to do is continue to serve him and trust him and be able to give to him and say, God, it's all yours. Learning, faith, rest is where we've got to be. We all live in the finished work of Christ. He paid all of our debt. God is in control of all that's going on, and we just need to learn to rest and say, God, I have you and have faith in God and know that he is going to work everything out. And it's not an easy thing to get there. And when you think you've gotten there, God will show you that you're still not there because he'll turn the heat up just a little bit to say, are you still going to have faith rest? And the, the thing that we are is when you're first new, newly Christian, it's hard to have your faith rest, but you know, you realize later on, after you walked with God for a few, few dozen years, a couple decades, you realize, you go, God, can I go back to the beginning when it was easy to have faith rest in, in what you're doing? But, and this is what I tell everybody. When you first get saved, everything you're learning is brand new. You're in kindergarten. But for the kindergartner, the test is still a hard test to the kindergartner. Once you get into high school, college, your tests have to be harder. And God tests us with where you're at. If you're still in kindergarten, he'll give you a kindergarten test. But for a kindergartner, a kindergarten test is hard. But if God gave us a kindergarten test when you're in high school, you know, and I've talked about this, you know, you're sitting in a high school math class and they give you a test, one plus one equals, two plus two equals, three plus three equals. You're going to look at the teacher and go, you know, what, I thought you were giving us a test. This is, this is not a test. God makes our test equal to where we are in our walk with him. So our test will always be difficult because of where we're at. Now, this means when I look at somebody and I think, well, how could they fail such a simple test? It wasn't simple for them. They're much lower level. They may be looking at me and going, I don't want to have to go through anything that they're going through. You know, we look at Fox's Book of Martyrs. How many of us are ready to give our life the way these guys did? There are stories of guys in Fox's Book of Martyrs that are being burnt at the stake. Their, their bonds burn up and they, they embrace the stake because they're happy to, to be punished for God. And they're celebrating, singing praises to God as they're being burnt. Or you look at this picture of Stephen in the, in the Bible, being stoned, looks up into heaven and says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And then his next statement is, Father, forgive them as he dies. Are we ready for that kind of stain? I don't know that I am. I'd like to think that I am, but I don't know that I'm ready for that, that point yet. But it comes down to faith's rest. If I have to take that test, I'm sure God will give me the grace and the power to be able to be one that says, Father, forgive them. Or sing praises to God. I still remember the pictures of the Coptic Christians being executed on the beach some, well, I guess it was 10 years ago now. They were singing praises to God as their heads are being cut off. And I'm going, God, what faith. What faith that they, they have in you. 
will I have that kind of faith if I was called to be martyred? I don't know. I'd, like I said, I'd like to hope and, and believe that I would, but we won't know until we face that test. But I can tell one thing, if you fail God in small tests, you definitely won't pass that big a test. If you can't say, I'm a Christian, to people when it doesn't cost you anything, you're definitely not going to say that I'm a Christian when it's going to cost you your life. We need to be able to pass the simple tests to be prepared for the bigger test. And there's going to come a time when we're going to be facing some big tests just to be a Christian. And we need to be ready to say, God, I trust you. I am following you, and I trust you completely. And I have my rest and my faith in you. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, help us to seek after you and to rest in your love, your faith, your, your control. Teach us to just have patience that you are God and you are in control. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona. 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.